Have you ever been part of an unhealthy church? No church is perfect, certainly not this one. But just like people, churches can be healthy or unhealthy. Just like families, churches can be functional or dysfunctional. So my question is, have you ever been part of an unhealthy, dysfunctional church? Now, thinking about that experience, what made it that way? Was it maybe ungodly people? Was it false doctrine that made it unhealthy? Was it unacceptable practices or maybe poor leadership? And even as you think about those things, did you ever think to yourself, what might God do to make that unhealthy church healthy again? What would God have to do? Well, in 60 AD, that's about 30 years after the death and resurrection of Jesus, the church on the Greek island of Crete had just begun. But friends, it was already a mess. The Apostle Paul, who was charged by Jesus himself to oversee um, church planting in all of the countries around the world outside of Israel, assigned one of his very best men named Titus to help the messy church on the island of Crete. And what we have in our Bibles is the letter from Paul, the apostle, to Titus, his fellow laborer, co-worker in the gospel, who was sent to the island of Crete. So please take your Bible, turn to Titus. This is the book that we began studying last week, and we will have 13 studies in it throughout this summer. So in this letter, Paul describes the church on Crete as in disorder and unhealthy. Let me show that to you, okay? Look at chapter 1, verse 5. This is why I left you in Crete, so that you might put what remained, what are the next two words? Into order. The church in Crete was in disorder. It was dysfunctional. That word into order is the Greek word ortho. And Paul said, I want you to go there and set it straight. Just like an orthodontist sets the teeth straight, Titus's task was to go and help the church to get straightened out because it was in disorder. I think you get the picture. Chapter 1, verse 9. Another way Paul describes this Church is not just in disorder, but verse 9, he says that they need sound doctrine. And then look at chapter 2, verse 1. Titus is supposed to teach sound doctrine. And you'll notice that the word sound is used five different times in this little letter. The word sound is the Greek word for healthy. What this church needed was 
healthy, wholesome, reliable teaching because it was unhealthy. And if you were to scan this letter, you would find three main problems with the church on Crete. Three big problems with this disorder, unhealthy church. Number one, it was immature. Look at verse five. Chapter one, verse five. Put what remained in order. What does that indicate? That there was a lot still left to be done. This church was unfinished. It was in the early stages of development. It was immature. And it needed to be um, helped toward maturity. Apparently, it lacked oversight, and the church on Crete was probably like how they described Israel under the book of Judges, that every man did that which was right in his own eyes, which equals chaos. Like marbles rolling around on your hardwood floor. So it was immature. Look at chapter 1, verse 10 through 11. It was infected with false doctrine. Where was the false doctrine coming from? Was it coming from TV? Probably, if they had TVs back then. It was actually coming from inside the church. This church had a disease inside the church, and they were false teachers, specifically Judaizers, uh, Judaizers who were promoting that we need to keep the Old Testament laws, and they misunderstood the gospel. And so it was infected with false doctrine. And verse 11 tells us that these false teachers were upsetting whole families. Chapter 3, verse 10 tells us that these false teachers were causing division in the church and that Titus needed to go there and deal with the false teachers. This church is immature, in disorder, unhealthy, and then, oh boy, it was full of ungodliness. We talked last week about how Crete was known for immorality, lying, and gluttony. More than half of this letter, all of chapter 2 and chapter 3, Paul tells Titus to talk to every kind of person in the church, and he goes through and names them. Older men, older women, younger men, younger women, servants. He goes through every list, and every time his emphasis is Teach them, help them to live godly lives. Why? Because they weren't. The members were acting more like Cretans than Christians. Which made it a church in disorder, unhealthy and immature. So Titus has been sent to this messy church to help bring order and maturity. What does Paul tell him to do? That's our sermon text for today. Chapter 1, verse 5 through 9. You got your Bibles out? You ready? Let's read and find out what Paul tells him to do. Chapter 1, verse 5. This is why I left you in Crete so that you might put what remained into order and appoint elders in every town as I directed you. 
If anyone is above reproach, the husband of one wife, and his children are believers and not open to the charge of debauchery or insubordination, for an overseer as God's servant must be above reproach. He he must not be arrogant or quick-tempered or a drunkard or violent or greedy for gain, but hospitable, a lover of good, self-controlled, upright, holy, and disciplined. He must hold firm to the trustworthy word as taught so that he may be able to give instruction in sound doctrine and also to rebuke those who contradict it. Now that'll end the reading of God's word for today. The rest of this sermon, I hope to explain what Paul wrote to Titus there because I think that you can see that this portion of the letter, Paul says, I left you on the island of Crete and he directs him to do two tasks. Did you see that? Number one, to put what remains into order. So the church is immature, unfinished, and it needs order. Paul says, I got my man, Titus. He has the right kind of disposition. He's going to go and he's going to bring order. Task number two to appoint elders in every town. Part of the unfinished business on the island of Crete, apparently, was that they didn't appoint elders and Titus needed to go there to appoint elders. I think that you could make a case from this letter, exegetically, grammatically, that Paul has given Titus two tasks. In this sermon, I'd like to suggest to you that it's one task and the means by which that primary task is accomplished. In other words, let me say it this way. Titus's assignment is to bring order to the church by appointing elders in every church. Healthy churches need faithful elders. So we learn one big lesson lesson from this text today. God has appointed elders as His stewards to oversee His church. And in order to serve God's church, Elders must be two things. They must be marked by gospel lives and gospel doctrine. So this passage focuses on the elders of the church. Most of you are not elders of this church, maybe have never been an elder. Certainly some of you cannot ever be elders. But I want to suggest that it applies to everybody in the room, not just the elders. There's four different kinds of people that this applies to. So in your listening to this sermon, certainly the direct application is to the current elders. Alan, that's me and you, buddy. Secondly, I'd like to hold what Paul says to Titus in this letter, I'd like to hold that out to all of the 
men in the room, all of the Christian men, the members of our church who are men, because I would like for you to consider and aspire to be an elder someday. Number three, this is important for our church as a whole. What Paul is telling us here about the church on Crete applies to Winchester Baptist Church as a whole. We need to consider what he says so that we know the role and responsibilities and qualifications biblically of elders. Why? Because we want to be a healthy church, right? We don't want to be in disorder and unhealthy and immature. We want to be functional, not a dysfunctional bunch of marbles rolling around on a hardwood floor. And then lastly, I want to emphasize how this teaching about elders applies to every single member of the church because God has given elders to his church to oversee the church so that his church might be healthy and functional according to his word. So let's unpack this big lesson in three parts. I gave you a note sheet with that sentence on it. There are three parts to that one big lesson. Part number one, God has appointed elders as his stewards to oversee his church. Part number two, and in order to serve God's church, elders must be marked by first gospel lives. And then part number three, in order to serve God's church, elders must be marked by gospel doctrine. So part number one, what this teaches us is a very important, very basic truth. God has appointed elders as his his stewards to oversee his church. That's a very carefully worded sentence there. So notice there are some key words there. Did, Did you notice them? Do you see them? Can you circle them on your note sheet? God has appointed elders as what? His stewards to oversee his church. This is God's church, friend. This is the church of Jesus Christ. This is not my church. This is not your church. We get the privilege of being part of the church of Jesus. But this is God's church. Throughout the Bible, God refers to his people as sheep and his people as his flock. We just read this morning, Jimmy read from Ezekiel 34, how God appointed shepherds over Israel. But what did those shepherds do? They used and abused God's people for their self-centered purposes. And so God did two things. Number one, he said, you don't mess with my people. He promised to judge them. And then number two, God said, I, I myself will be the shepherd for my people. So God promised to send a true and faithful shepherd for his people because the the sinful shepherds of Israel had abused, abused, and scattered God's people all over the place. So God fulfilled his promise of Ezekiel 34 by sending Jesus Christ, his son. The true shepherd, Jesus in John chapter 10 
which Mike Jones just preached a couple of weeks ago. Jesus says, I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. My sheep, Jesus says, hear my voice and I know them and they follow me and I give to them eternal life and they'll never perish and no one will ever snatch them out of my hand. Friend, listen to me. Here's the gospel. God loves you. So much that he sent his son and sacrificed his son on the cross to rescue your soul from sin and death and hell. That's how much God loves you. And God says, all who will come to Jesus by faith will be my sheep. And Jesus says, I will give you eternal life and no one will ever be able to snatch you out of my hand. Jesus did what no shepherd was ever willing to do. Jesus sacrificed himself for the sheep rather than using the sheep to serve himself. That's our true shepherd. And so before Jesus ascended into heaven, You remember life, death on the cross, burial in the tomb, resurrection from the tomb, a bunch of days, and then he ascends to heaven. Before he ascends, Jesus does something very important. Jesus gathers his now 11 disciples and makes them apostles. Jesus says to them, one very notably, You remember Peter? Jesus on that beach scene early in the morning when Peter had done some terrible things in in denying the Lord three times, Jesus goes and he says to Peter, Peter, do you love me? Peter said, yeah, Lord, I love you. What was Jesus' command to Peter? Feed my lambs. Do you love me? Shepherd my sheep. Eleven disciples, I've got a job for you. I'm the good shepherd. I am making you my under shepherds here on earth to continue to shepherd my sheep in my stead. And so the apostle Paul, years later, Jesus meets him in person on the road to persecute his church. And he says, Paul, what are you doing? Do not persecute my church. That's me you're persecuting right there. Paul, Jesus calls Paul to be one of his apostles, shepherds. So now look what, what, look, look what the apostle Paul is doing with Titus. He's saying, Titus, I want you to go to the island of Crete. And what do I want you to do? I want you to shepherd God's church. And how does he shepherd the unhealthy, dysfunctional church of God? Appoint elders. That's what they need. They need faithful shepherds to help them toward maturity and health and order. Friends, God's grace to us 
is to shepherd our soul through faithful men who are faithful to Jesus and his word. Jesus is the true shepherd, not any one of your pastors or elders here. But Jesus appoints under shepherds on his behalf. And so that was this task that the apostle gives to Titus. And notice he uses three main words. Verse 5, look at it there in your Bibles. Appoint elders. The word elder means older man, but it was a a term of position. It meant uh, to be an elder of Israel, denoting spiritual maturity. So you were, if you were an elder in your society, then you had come up to that position because of maturity. And in the church, the word elder denotes spiritual maturity. Appoint spiritually mature men to care for my church in every town on Crete. And by the way, let's just remember that Crete was an island as big as the Shenandoah Valley. It was uh, 160 miles long. And about as wide. So from the Blue Ridge to the Allegheny, from Winchester to Roanoke, that's Crete. How many towns were there? Not as many as we have today. How many people? Not as many as we have here in the Shenandoah. But it's towns, plural. And Titus was charged to go to those towns where the church was and make sure that every church had faithful elders. Look at verse 7. Halfway through his instructions... Paul uses another word. Look at verse 7. For an overseer. Now, wait a minute. I thought we were talking about elders. Who, who are we talking about? Elders or overseers? Answer? Yes. So I was talking to this man the other day, and the guy said, it's just two different words for the same office. Just like man and guy, or friend, the word elder and overseer, may have denoted some type of nuance ministry. But in the New Testament, it's used interchangeably all the time. I'll show you in just a moment. Verse 7, for an overseer. So what does an overseer do? He oversees. It's the word to look at and to examine and to oversee a project or a people. Then in verse 7, also, for an overseer, comma, what are the next three words? As God's steward. The overseers and the elders are also God's stewards. Now, we know what a steward is, someone who takes care of someone else's stuff, right? This was very common in that culture. Jesus used to talk about stewards all the time in his parables, you remember. It was a household manager. And if you were wealthy enough, then you would take, get this, I love this, you would take one of your servants and make them the authority over the other servants and over all of your stuff. They would become the, quote, manager of your household. 
They would be a trusted servant that you felt like you could give them responsibility and authority and they were put in a position of authority over everybody else and all of your stuff. Everything from the children to their education to their finances. The household manager was a trusted servant, but he was still a servant of the owner of the house. Friends, that's what an elder is. This ain't my house. The church is no man's. It is the Lord Jesus Christ bought with his blood. But he has called some of his servants to be household managers. God's stewards. Also called overseers because they're spiritually mature elders. Let me just show you one place out of about six that you can find these three terms used interchangeably, because you might say, and some denominations do, I'm not faulting them for this, maybe they got it right and we got it wrong, but some denominations will have a role of an elder and then a role of an overseer um, and things like that, but but we we don't see any difference between them because of places like, for example, First Peter chapter five. Just take a look at that real quick in your Bibles. First Peter chapter five, verse one and two uses the three words right there together, talking to the same people in the same place, not three different kinds of people, but the same guys. Uh, Peter says in chapter five, verse one and two, I exhort the elders among you as a fellow elder. And then look what he says, shepherd the flock of God that is among you, exercising what? Oversight, not domineering, but by being examples to the flock. The word elder, the word shepherd or pastor, and the word overseer right there together. You could go to Acts chapter 20. You can go to Ephesians chapter 4. You can go to Titus here and in 1 Timothy, and you can find these words used interchangeably. So, We use the word elder, pastor, most, please don't call me bishop. In fact, I don't, I don't even particularly like people calling me pastor. I just, I just want to serve you as pastor. But elder, pastor, overseer, bishop, uh, all of them are interchangeable. Now that is completely different biblically than a deacon, which we don't have time for here. But pastors and deacons, elders and deacons. Overseers and deacons are the two roles that God has given to his church, and we'll leave it at that. Friends, Winchester Baptist Church embraces a leadership not only of elders, but of a plurality of elders. In other words, we always want to be led by more than one elder. Why? Two reasons. Number one, scripturally, because every time the New Testament talks about eldership, it's always plural. It always envisions a group of biblically thinking men leading the church together. Why? Reason number two, not just scripturally, but very practically. There's a wisdom. There is accountability. There is a power when a plurality of biblically thinking men serve together in unity. That plurality 
protects the church against any one man. Elders are God's grace to oversee, shepherd his church. Part number two. Part number two. So in order to serve God's church, Paul tells Titus who he should be looking for. He tells them that two things are of utmost importance. That's part two and part three. First of all, elders must be marked by gospel lives. Godly lives. Number two, elders must be marked by gospel doctrine. Sound, biblical, healthy doctrine. So in the rest of our text, after Paul tells Titus, I left you on Crete to help the church by appointing elders as God's servants to oversee those churches, he tells them, here's who you need to be looking for. Now, friends, those churches were not much different than ours. They were full of people just like you, men and women, boys and girls, mature, immature, functional, dysfunctional, people on all over the spectrum, just normal people. So read verse 6 through 8, and we're going to see part 2. Elders must be marked by, first, godly lives. Isn't that what you want for your elders? Godly men. If anyone is above reproach, the husband of one wife, and his children are believers and not open to the charge of debauchery or insubordination, for an overseer, as God's steward must be above reproach. He is must not be arrogant or quick-tempered or a drunkard or violent or greedy for gain. But verse 8, he must be hospitable, a lover of good, self-controlled, upright, holy, and disciplined. Paul explains to Titus what to look for in the elders that he appoints. He says, look for four things. First of all, his life. Secondly, his marriage. Third, his parenting. And fourth, his character. Paul Tripp, in his book on leadership, says what every church and every leader ought to recognize about this list is that God values character over performance. Notice what God values here. The heart, the attitudes, the godly character of a man. It says nothing about how good he is at anything. God values character, not performance. So that's why this church is called... No, I'm just kidding. Not... Not that I have great character. I was just dissing my own performance, I guess. Stupid joke. So if God values character over performance, the question is, do we? 
Because honestly, when we're looking for pastors, like if I were to drop dead tomorrow and you were on a search for a new pastor, what would you be looking for? Would you first be looking for a guy who's really good at what he does, who's an excellent speaker? Or would you be looking primarily for the things that Paul describes here? Don't look for ability, charisma, and success. God values a life marked by the gospel. That's what a healthy church needs in its elders. So first of all, Paul uh, Paul tells Titus, look at his life. Notice the very first thing that Paul emphasizes. One mark over, literally first in line over everything. Elders must be what? Above reproach. So important that Paul says it twice. Verse 6, if anyone is above reproach. Verse 7, an overseer must be what? Above reproach. It's listed first in 1 Timothy chapter 3, where Paul tells his other guy who was sent to a metropolis in Ephesus. He lists it first there. What does it mean to be above reproach? Does it mean that your elders need to be sinless? That's impossible. No one is without sin but the Lord Jesus Christ. Every one of your elders struggles with sin in mind and heart and hand every day that he lives. So an elder must be an example of what Martin Luther calls being at the same time sinners and saints. Those who have been made righteous and pursue holiness because of the Lord Jesus Christ and his gospel of grace. To be above reproach means that there is no accusation that can be thrown at your elder that will stick. This is emphasizing his public reputation. Why? Because the credibility of the gospel is tied to his credibility. When you look at your elders' lives, you should see Jesus. And I say that with all humility and desire for God to make me that kind of a man. Look at his life, Paul says. He must be above reproach. Number two, look at his marriage. Verse six in the middle. If anyone is the husband of one wife. So on an island known for its sexual immorality, a godly marriage would have been rare. And a godly marriage displays the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. That's what every good marriage, well, that's what every marriage is supposed to portray, is the great marriage between Jesus and his bride, the Christ. The church, my words are getting all jumbled up. Certainly this is a prohibition on polygamy, but more, it's it's an emphasis on this husband being faithful to his wife, loving and leading her the way Christ loves and leads his church. Look at his marriage. Number three, look at his parenting. 
You see there at the end of verse 6, and his children are believers and not open to the charge of debauchery or insubordination. Now, before you think that your four-year-old is going to disqualify you from ever being an elder, <laughs> let's recognize that obviously they're talking about older kids here. If they can be open to a public charge of debauchery, which is no light thing, like a debaucherous lifestyle is a wild, excessively um, pagan kind of heathen lifestyle. Or insubordination, not just in your home, but here it's talking about this public reputation. So it seems simple enough that his children are to be believers and not publicly wild and rebellious. Well, there's a problem with that. While children are in a home, I totally agree. Parents ought to be able to teach their children to obey their authority. But no parent can ever guarantee that their child will receive Jesus Christ. You can't do it. The second problem is that this differs from 1 Timothy 3 which does not say his children are believers or are faithful and not open to these things. In 1 Timothy chapter 3, it says you should look at the elder as a father because there you're going to see what he's like as he shepherds God's church. So how his kids are in his home is a reflection of how he is able to shepherd God's church. I am not suggesting that Titus is wrong and Timothy is right. What I am suggesting is that because of these differences, because, for example, probably any elder that you respect right now also has children who are not Christians. Because it is absolutely out of any man or woman's control to make their kids in faith. What we, I, and other commentators assume is that Paul is saying to Titus, because of the early development of the church, you need to find guys who not only their public reputation, but the public reputation of their family is absolutely sterling so that they give the kind of right representative a representation of the church. Now, I'm going to hold that loosely. We can explore that more. But if you're going to take this and say that every single elder, all of his kids must be believers, then you're going to rule out about 70% of the elders that I even know. I think it's situational here in Crete because of the early development of the church and the difficulty in society. But I, I promise you, I will hold that uh, very, very loosely. And, and, and when I get to heaven, the Lord can correct me. So please do not take that as what this means. That's just plausibly, uh, plausibility. Look at his life, look at his marriage, but certainly look at his parenting. And when you combine 1 Timothy 3 and Titus chapter 1, what you can see is that a man is cannot be a faithful elder if he is not a faithful father. 
time out. Does that mean that every elder must be married and must have children? Some people would say, yes, I would say absolutely not. Paul didn't have any, he wasn't, he didn't have a wife. Paul didn't have any kids. For all we know, Titus didn't have a wife and kids. If he has a wife, look at his marriage. If he has children, look at his parenting. Number four, look at his character. Verse seven and eight. Verse 7 and 8, look at his character. These are the characteristics that are required for eldership. This is a direction, not perfection. For example, look at the very first one in verse 6. He is not to be arrogant. If you ever see arrogance in me, you should fire me on the spot because I'm absolutely disqualified. Is that what that's saying? You can only look for men who never struggle with wrestling with pride. No, we all do. Do you not struggle with self-centeredness and pride? Do we not all struggle with these things? Yes. The question is, am I known to be an arrogant man? Or is the direction of my life to resist self-centeredness and to beg God to develop humility in my heart? As an elder, Alan too, every one of you. These are maturity areas, not perfection in all of them. So I want you to notice in verse 7 and 8 that there are five things that an elder should not be and six things that an elder should be. We don't have time to explore all of them in detail. Let me just give you a very fast glance at all of them. Here's what it says. Verse 7, an elder must not be arrogant. In other words, self-centered, but he should be a humble servant. He should not be quick-tempered. Why? Because anger is a liability in every relationship, and elders have got to be patient people. He cannot be a drunkard. Why? Like the Cretan culture. Who was a bunch of drunkards? But your elder, you want not to be filled with alcohol. You want your elders to be what? Filled with the Spirit and the Word of God controlling them. He should not be violent because people outside and inside the church are definitely going to push his buttons. And he should not be greedy for gain. No one ever should be. But this is specifically, look at verse 11. This is specifically the mark of false teachers on Crete. And I'm afraid that it's quite often the mark of false teachers in America and across the world, isn't it? Greedy for gain. In verse 11, they teach for shameful gain. They profit off of their positions. And isn't that one of the things that God got up in the... Faces of the shepherds of Israel in Ezekiel 34. Jimmy, did you see that? He was like, you are feeding yourself, not my sheep. And it's coming to an end. God doesn't mess around with that stuff. So he says, make sure that when you're going town to town, looking at the men of the church, look for men who must not be these things. And then he gives uh, six things that they should be. Verse 8, they must be hospitable. Now, in our culture, hospitable usually means that I'm willing to have you over for dinner. That was not Middle Eastern hospitality. On Crete, hospitable meant 
when the church is being persecuted, you want to look for men who will take people into their homes and care for them. You want to look for men and their homes, their their wives and their kids, who will take people in and really care for them physically as they do spiritually. Look at the second one, a lover of good. By the way, there are six out of these 11 things that are not mentioned in 1 Timothy. I think that's really interesting. I, I encourage you to go back And I think there's a purpose for that. I think what Paul is saying is this is not just like a standard list of all the things that an elder is supposed to be and not be and just copy-paste from Timothy over to Titus's letter. I think what Paul did here was he says, yes, they should be this one, certainly first above reproach. Yeah, put the wife in there, put the kids in there. And there are a bunch of them that are the same. But then Paul includes six I think specifically because that's what the Cretan culture needed in its elders. Not arrogant, not quick-tempered, a lover of good. And then look at the last three. Upright, holy, disciplined. Doesn't it sound like he's saying the same thing over and over again? Upright, holy, disciplined. Why? Because the culture on Crete was immoral and ungodly and self-centered. It was unholy. So he's to be a lover of good, self-controlled. The restraint was heralded in the Greek culture. Thoughts and behaviors that are under the control of the Spirit. Upright, holy, known to be devoted to God, set apart inwardly and outwardly and disciplined, able to control his body and his appetites. Elders should do this. Why? Because it rightly reflects the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. New men serving Christ's church. Men given over to an appetite for Christ instead of an appetite for sin. Quickly, part three. So in order to serve God's church, elders must be marked by gospel lives. And now he emphasizes in verse nine, gospel doctrine. Read verse nine. He must hold firm to the trustworthy word as taught, so that he, the elder, may be able to give instruction in sound doctrine and also rebuke those who contradict it. Beyond character, elders must be men of the word, specifically the trustworthy word as taught, the the gospel that Jesus gave to his apostles and that his apostles turned around and gave to faithful men who will give to faithful men who will give to faithful men. The trustworthy gospel as taught. The first commitment that we make to each other in our church covenant is this. We will submit ourselves to Christ through his word. The authority of Christ over his church is exercised through his word. 
not the elders' opinions, not their preferences. So elders fundamentally must, quote, hold firm to, have a tight grip on, an unwavering commitment to the gospel of Jesus Christ. The opposite of that is that elders hold loosely to the gospel. Or elders hold to the gospel and current trends and business principles and what people want to hear. You don't want that. We don't ever want that. That's how unhealthy churches, dysfunctional churches happen. Scripture tells us that we want elders who will hold firm to the gospel because everybody's ears are itching to hear something else. But what we need is the gospel of Jesus, the gospel of his grace to sinners. So that the elders have two tasks. Note at the end of verse 9. So that two things. He may give instruction and he may rebuke. That's just the positive and negative side of the same task. So the elders are to give instruction. They're to come alongside and encourage and exert, exhort people with the reliable, sound, whole, healthy doctrine of God's word. So elders give that instruction publicly in our corporate worship service like I'm doing right now. You realize that this uh, corporate worship service, every corporate worship service going on all around the country and around the world is either promoting the health of the church or helping to deteriorate it right now as men and, uh, and women, I suppose, are preaching all over the country. Hold fast to gospel so that you can give instruction from it. Elders don't just give that while they're preaching publicly, but elders give that in private counsel. So friends, I just want to encourage you that when you have an elder who is faithful to God's word, he is a blessing from God to each one of our hearts. And I put myself as a member of the church right alongside with you. They're under shepherds of Christ, helping us, encouraging us to follow Jesus. Listen to them as they share God's word with us. But to avoid or to ignore the faithful teaching of an elder is really, really dangerous, isn't it? Not because it's what he says but it's because thus says the Lord. So that he may give instruction with sound doctrine, and then the second part of that task is so that he may rebuke those who contradict that sound doctrine. Do you see that at the end of verse 9? The elders are responsible to protect the church from false teachers. Those false teachers are often outside of the church and they're often inside the church. And we're quite happy when our elders will stand up and expose the false teaching of some guy out there on TV or on the radio 
But when he slips up beside us and graciously begins to correct our doctrine, then we might not receive that so well. Friends, that's the role of elders in our lives, is to both instruct positively and rebuke so that we individually and we corporately can be healthy spiritually. So you can see that sound doctrine is the health food of the church. So let me just close very, very quickly with just a couple of applications to those four kinds of people that I started the sermon off talking to. Just a couple of applications, all right? Alan, you and I are the current elders of the church. What a privilege, right? I thank God for the opportunity. This is a blessing from God to be able to serve this church. This is our calling, but these are our qualifications. You and I will never do it in our own strength. We need to rely on the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ every single day, all day of our lives. To be able to be filled with his spirit, to be men of his word, to live gospel lives and have gospel doctrine. May God keep us faithful for the health of his church. Because the reputation of his gospel and his church is tied to our reputation. May we hold fast to sound doctrine, not everything else that's being peddled in society. Men. Members of this church who are men. I just say what the Bible says. Every time it talks about elders, it only talks about men, and it specifically says that women are not to be the elders of the church in 1 Timothy chapter 2. That's God's thing, not mine. I think my wife would be a much better pastor than I ever am. So do you. (laughs) Men. 1 Timothy chapter 3 leads with this. This saying is trustworthy. If anyone aspires to the office of overseer, he desires a noble task. And I will repeat what Mike Jones said here about three weeks ago so eloquently. Men, what do you aspire to that is more important than this? Our church needs more elders. We always want to have three. We've been a couple of years with just two or just me. Our church needs a plurality of elders. We're small, but it's important. Men, consider this beautiful honor to serve God. Do you have the ability to explain and lead with God's word? Let's begin a conversation about the future. Number three, church. Winchester Baptist Church. This passage is for us. These are the kinds of elders that we should look for and not accept any substitutes. When we call our next elder, don't let down the standards just to fill vacancies. If I drop dead tomorrow... Don't you dare bring a guy in here just because he seems to be a really charismatic individual. 
You look for a man who's got a gospel life and gospel doctrine so that this church is healthy. And I say man, I just mean as your pastor teacher, the guy that gets the glorious privilege of being paid to do this stuff. Value character and doctrine over charisma and ability. And finally, every member in the room. I hope you can see from this text that God, one of God's graces to all of us are elders to help us personally. They're members, they're sheep, just like we are. But God has set them as household servants to steward and oversee his church. And it's God's gift and grace to us. So that we keep following Jesus. Hebrews chapter 13 says, obey your leaders, submit to them for they are keeping watch over your soul as those who will give an account. Let them do this with joy and not with groaning for that would be a disadvantage to you. So let me ask you just very practically. Are you regularly being fed the word by elders who hold fast to sound doctrine or Does anything get in the way of you gathering with the church on Sunday? Are you regularly being instructed through sound doctrine or are your ears in tune to your co-workers and friends? Are you influenced by the doctrine of your news channels and social media feeds? Elders are God's grace to all of us. So pray for them. Encourage them. Hold them accountable. But just like Paul says, if you've got faithful elders, then follow them as they follow Christ and no farther. That's a great text. It's humbling, but it's instructive. May God use it for the health of our church and your soul. Let's pray. God, thank you so much for this little letter to uh, from Paul to Titus. And God, I, I thank you that you have appointed elders over all of us. And I thank you for the, the, for the elders that you have provided for our church. Um, I pray that you would please make us faithful as we follow your word and your son, the Lord Jesus Christ, don't ever let any of our elders, don't ever let any of our members, don't ever let our church stray from Jesus. But I pray that you would use the elders of this church to help us mature and stay orderly according to your word so that we can be healthy for your glory and our joy. Thank you in Jesus' name. Amen and amen.